After this, Jesus went away to the other side of the Sea of Galilee, which is the Sea of Tiberias, and a large crowd was following him because they saw the signs that he was doing on the sick. Jesus went up on the mountain, and there he sat down with his disciples. Now the Passover, the feast of the Jews, was at hand. Lifting up his eyes then and seeing that a large crowd was coming toward him, Jesus said to Philip, Where are we to buy bread so that these people may eat? He said this to test him, for he himself knew what he would do. Philip answered him, Two hundred denarii worth of bread would not be enough for each of them to get a little. One of his disciples, Andrew, Simon Peter's brother, said to him, There is a boy here who has five barley, barley loaves and two fish, but what are they for so many? Jesus said, Have the people sit down. Now there was much grass in the place, so the men sat down, about five thousand in number. Jesus then took the loaves, and when he had given thanks, he distributed them to those who were seated. So also the fish, as much as they wanted. And when they had eaten their fill, he told his disciples, Gather up the leftover fragments, that nothing may be lost. So they gathered them up and filled twelve baskets with fragments from the five barley loaves left by those who had eaten. When the people saw the sign that he had done, they said, This is indeed the prophet who has come into the world. Perceiving then that they were about to come and take him by force to make him king, Jesus withdrew again to the mountain by himself. And now verses 27 through 35. Do not work for the food that perishes, but for the food that endures to eternal life, which the Son of Man will give to you. For on him God the Father has set his seal. Then they said this to him, What must we do to be doing the works of God? Jesus answered them, This is the work of God, that you may believe in him whom he has sent. So they said to him, Then what sign do you do that we may see and believe you? What work do you perform? Our fathers ate the manna in the wilderness, as it is written, He gave them bread from heaven to eat. Jesus then said to them, Truly, truly, I say to you, it was not Moses who gave you the bread from heaven, but my Father gives you the true bread from heaven. For the bread of God is he who comes down from heaven and gives life to the world. They said to him, Sir, give us this bread always. Jesus said to them, I am the bread of life. Whoever comes to me shall not hunger, and whoever believes in me shall never thirst. This is the word of the Lord. We've been looking at John for a couple of weeks now, and you might remember that in John's gospel, the miracles of Jesus are referred to as signs. Back in chapter 2, when he turned the water into wine, John said that this was the first sign that Jesus gave. And here in this chapter, we read that Jesus feeding the 5,000 with five loaves of bread and two fish is a sign. Now, a sign, obviously, is an idea or a word category that refers to something which points to something else or something which symbolizes something else. And when we use the language of seeing, that's often what we, need, what we mean. Let me give you an example. Some of you who are fathers, as your daughters have grown up, perhaps at some point in your life, your daughter has begun to date a young man. And the young man has picked her up to take her out on a couple of dates. This has not yet happened in my house, by God's grace. And uh, maybe it's the fourth or fifth date, and the boy that your daughter's dating and that she really enjoys spending time with leaves, and you look at your wife and you say, I just don't know what she sees in him. I'm sure I'll never say that. But some of you might have. And um, when someone says that, they don't mean, I don't understand what what he looks like. Well, you might mean that actually, but that's not the point. Typically when we say, I don't know what she sees in him. We mean, I don't understand what she likes about this person's character, about who he is. That's what 
a sign is about. It's about pointing us to the meaning or to the purpose or to the character of someone or something. And what John is doing in giving us these signs of Jesus week in and week out is really asking us, what do you see in Jesus? What do you see in Jesus? And every week we're seeing a little bit differently something about him. We've seen that he is the word of God who came into the world to make God known. He's the lamb of God who came to take away sin. He's the well. And this morning we see that he is the bread, the bread of life. Now, this is a really long chapter, John 6. Maybe a great thing for you to do this afternoon would be to read all the way through it and reflect on it, meditate on it at 71 verses. And I know that you can do that. And we're going to summarize the chapter and study the chapter by looking at four different questions that are asked in the text itself. So that'll be our outline this morning as we jump in here to John 6. Remember, the big idea is, what is it that you see in Jesus? That's what John wants you to ask yourself. So here's the first question. Where are we to buy bread? Verses 1 through 13. These verses are about Jesus feeding the 5,000. This is the only miracle that's recorded in all four of the New Testament Gospels. And if you'll notice in verse 10, the 5,000 are just the men who were there. So it's very likely that there were 10 or maybe even 20,000 people on the hillside that day next to the Sea of Galilee. They've followed Jesus onto this rugged mountainside and they're weary and they're hungry. And one of the great Very clear points of this text is that Jesus cares for hungry people. Jesus cares about the poor. Jesus cares about the needy. Jesus loves the starving and he loves the weak. And so he does this remarkable miracle of turning five barley loaves and two fish into enough food to feed thousands upon thousands. And even enough that at the end of the miracle, there's more leftover fragments than they even started with in the beginning. But what I want to really hone in on for a second is the question that Jesus asks one of the disciples, Philip, and the dialogue that follows that. Look there in verse 5. Jesus says to Philip, where are we to buy bread so that these people may eat? Where's the nearest H-E-B, right? That's what Jesus is asking. And then in the very next verse, John tells us that Jesus said this to test Philip. For Jesus already knew what he was going to do, and he likely already knew how he was going to do it. But he puts forward this question to test his disciples anyway. And so what does that mean? What is the test? Here it is. Jesus is in essence asking this. Do you believe that I can provide abundantly out of your poverty? I love how the commentator Frederick Bruner puts it. Listen to what he writes. Apparently, Jesus likes to test his disciples from time to time with seemingly impossible situations to see if they will come through. Not with some heroic work of their own, but with at least a little trust in his miraculous work. So that's the test. Do you believe that I am enough? I, the one standing right here in front of you. And if you'll look in verse 7, Philip, if he were to be graded for this test, I would imagine would get a big, fat, red F. Look at what Philip says. 
200 denarii, 200 days of work, of wages, would not be enough even to come close to feeding all these people. F. Andrew, however, jumps in in verse 8. We might give Andrew a C plus, maybe? A C plus. And he says, Jesus, um, there's a boy here. He has five barley loaves and two fish. But then this question, but what are they for so many? What's Jesus doing? Jesus is, in a sense, saying, hey, guys, try me. Give me whatever you have, even if it doesn't seem like very much to you. You see, Jesus here takes even less than mustard seed-sized faith, and he goes to work with it. Do you see that? What's the point? The point is this. Even a little bit of faith can be used mightily by God. And the reason is, Tim mentioned this last week in his sermon, the reason that that's true is because the strength of faith is not dependent upon the subject of faith, that is the one believing, it's dependent upon the object of faith. Faith has power because of who we believe in, not because of how much we believe. The great theologian Martin Luther illustrates this point like this. Let me read to you what Luther writes. We might compare this idea to two persons who possess a hundred gold coins. The one may carry them in a paper sack. The other may keep them in an iron chest. But for all that, both possess the entire treasure. Thus the Christ, whom you and I own, is one and the same, regardless of the strength or the weakness of your faith or of mine. In him we possess all, whether we hold him with a strong faith or a weak faith. Listen, Jesus is in the business of working miracles with impoverished faith. Isn't this story a great depiction of how our faith feels? Of what our spiritual lives feel like? I mean, so often we're virtually asking the same question that Andrew asks. We have five loaves and two fish, but how much is that? What is that for the things that are facing me, Jesus? Isn't that what it's like to experience the Christian walk so often? I don't have enough resources to meet the needs I see in front of me, we think. I can't get past my depression and sadness. I can't provide for all the emotional needs of my family. I can't make the right decisions about my future. I can't be the superstar employee that my boss seems to be demanding that I be. Listen, Christianity says, yes, that's true. So give what little you have to Jesus. He loves to bring fullness out of your barrenness. He loves to bring abundance out of our lack. Isn't that hopeful? So the first question is, where are we going to find bread? And then moving to our second question, we ask, what should we do? So we see regularly in the gospel accounts that even after Jesus' miracles and his explanation of his miracles, that people still don't see the signs rightly. They don't see him for who he is. The disciples don't see him for who he is. And oftentimes you and I don't see him for who he is. We don't get it. Look at what happens. Verse 14. Some say that Jesus is the prophet. That is a religious leader. That's true as far as it goes, but it doesn't go far enough. And then in verse 15, Jesus has to escape quietly because some want to make him king. That is, they want him to be a political revolutionary to lead Israel in the overthrow of their oppressors, in the overthrow of Rome, right then and there. So they don't really get who Jesus is and why Jesus came, and they want to co-opt him 
into their own designs and their own plans. And guess what? The same thing happens today all the time. Religious movements try to co-opt Jesus. Political movements try to co-opt Jesus, whether you're on the left or on the right or anywhere in between. But guess what? Jesus cannot be co-opted. He can't be co-opted by any of our human agendas or policies. That's why Jesus says in verse 27, hey, y'all are laboring for the wrong things, for the wrong types of food. What he's saying there is you don't see me clearly. You need the food that I will give. You need the food that only I can provide, food that endures to eternal life. It's not political revolution that's going to free you. It's not another prophet that's going to free you. It's eating what he calls the true bread, bread that endures forever. That's what is going to free you. And so the people hear this, and then they ask our second question. Look in verse 28. Okay, given that, Jesus, we need the right food. We're laboring for the wrong things. What do we have to do? What must we do to be doing the works of God? Now, that is one of the most asked questions in the history of religion. If religious questions were a topic on family feud, that's going to make the top five. All right, God, tell me what I need to do to make you happy. Tell me what boxes I need to check off to be okay with you. Tell me what test I need to at least get 51% on to be good in your presence. What do we have to do to please you? Just tell us, Jesus, and we'll do it. Is that the way you view religion and spirituality? Are you asking that question of God? What do you need me to do, God? I know I need to fix some things. I know I have some issues. Just tell me what to do and I'll go do it. Listen, that is the way of religion, but that is not the gospel. In fact, that is anti-gospel. Jesus is not interested in what you can do for him. Jesus is interested in showing you what he did for you. And so he gives this beautiful answer. He's so patient with these people, so kind to them. Verse 29, they ask, what do we do? And Jesus says, this is the work of God, that you believe, that you trust in him whom he has sent. Now notice Jesus changes the subject of their sentence. Did you catch that? They asked, what works should we do? And Jesus responds, this is God's work. It's God's work that you believe. There's a lot going on there theologically. But at the very least, part of what Jesus is getting at is, just give me a second to tell you that right now God is working and enabling you to actually see me rightly, to see me for who I am, to have the faith that you need. Jesus is saying your main job, and actually God is the one that accomplishes it, is for you to trust, for you to believe, for you to see that Jesus is who he says he is, and to entrust yourself to him fully. Do you see that as the main thing? Now, we don't like to believe that. Really, we don't. You might tell me right now in church on Sunday, yeah, pastor, I love that. No, you don't. You don't love that. Because if you love that, you would stop acting in self-reliance. But you don't, and neither do I. We don't like to believe that it is just reliance or trust that makes us acceptable with God, that gets us in, so to speak. 
We like to think we contribute something so that we can feel better about ourselves. Even long-time Christians struggle with this. We find it hard to believe that self-reliance will not work and cannot work. So we trust for a bit, and then we go back to trying to do it for ourselves. Remember when you learned to swim? I remember when I learned to swim, and I watched my instructor float on the water. And I'd watched other students and older kids float on the water, and I believed in my mind humans can float on water, at least for a given period of time. But then I tried to float on water. And guess what would happen? Still today, sometimes. <laughs> I'll start floating for just a second, and then I'll think, I'm not doing this right. The water's not going to hold my body weight. And I start thrashing and kicking and flailing. And then what happens? I go down. Thankfully, it's usually three feet. But I sink. That's a picture of what our spiritual lives are like so often. Jesus is saying, you just need to trust me. Just float on my strength. And we'll do it for a minute. Kick, flail, thrash. I need to fix this. I need to take care of myself. I need to do it on my own. But Jesus says, no, 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 no. Here's what you need to do. Believe. Trust me. And so the story goes on. Jesus says, trust me. And then we see the third question there in verse 30. They said to him, then what sign do you do that we may see and believe you? What work will you perform? This is the question of the skeptic, right? The crowds hear Jesus say, okay, all you need to do is believe. And they still don't get it. So they say, okay, well, you're going to have to show us something that makes us believe that you're credible, that you're worthy of believing. Now think about this in context, how ridiculous this is. This is the same group that just got fed. Same context. They didn't leave and another group come in. They just got fed. 20,000 of them by five, by like a midday snack. That's what they got fed by. And yet, you know, Jesus, you need to show us you're better than Moses. Moses made manna rain down from heaven. Moses made it rain. You need to make it rain, right? You need to do more than Moses did. You need to show us something more special. Show us something more significant. That's the third question. What are you going to do to prove that you're worthy of our trust? What work will you perform, Jesus? And here's what Jesus basically says at this point, and it kind of takes up the rest of the chapter. He says, listen, I didn't come to dazzle you with signs and miracles. That's not the purpose. I came to give you myself as the bread of life. I came to offer myself as bread for you to eat. Look at verse 35. Jesus says, I am the bread of life. Whoever comes to me shall not hunger, and whoever believes in me shall never thirst. And then again, verse 51. I am the living bread that came down from heaven. If anyone eats of this bread, he or she will live forever. And the bread that I will give for the life of the world is my flesh. Now, all this language is another way that Jesus refers to his death and his resurrection. What work will Jesus perform? Well, he will offer himself up in his death on the cross as a substitute so that people's sin can be pardoned. Notice in verse 4 that Luke, John says that this happened on Passover. That's not insignificant. Jesus is saying here, I am the one to whom Passover points. I am the one to whom communion, which we're going to celebrate in a minute, points. I am the bread of life that is broken on the cross so that our sins can be forgiven and taken away from us 
That's what communion points to. Jesus is saying here, I am coming to give you myself. I'm coming to die to atone for all of your rebellion against God. I'm coming to take the weight and the guilt of human sin against a righteous creator. Here's the truth, friends. All of us, without exception, throughout our lives and this week, even this morning, we have been selfish, we have been hateful, we have been lustful, we have been vengeful, we have been intolerant, we have been spiteful, we have been proud. And Jesus says that I came to take the shame and the guilt and the penalty of all of those things. I've come to take the evil of this world, the curse of sin, the curse that all of us deserve to bear on our own. Jesus takes on himself in his death. Jesus opens the door for forgiveness. He satisfies weary sinners with living bread. That's what he says here. He even gets crazy in verse 53 and 54. He says, unless you eat the flesh, what? Unless you eat the flesh of the son of man and drink his blood, you have no life in you. Whoever feeds on my flesh and drinks my blood has eternal life and I will raise him up on the last day. What in the world? Jesus is not advocating cannibalism here, by the way. Early Christians were actually accused of that because of this sort of language, but Jesus is speaking symbolically here. I think about it like this. If you've been perhaps away from your significant other or your spouse for some period of time, let's say your husband is in the military or your wife is in the military and they've been deployed and you have the opportunity to speak to them on Skype or on the phone or whatever. Sometimes the language we might use, and pardon me if I'm prying too much into your personal life, but we might use language like, I'm starving for you. I miss your presence. I'm hungry to be near you. I want you with me. I miss you. That's the way that Jesus is speaking here. He's asking people to come and receive him fully, to come to him and be as close to him as possible. He's saying, you need to see me not just as a prophet, not just as a moral teacher, but as the savior, as the one who can meet the needs that you have as the only one who can forgive your sin. That's why Jesus repeatedly in these last verses of the chapter says, come to me, come to me. He says it in 37. He says it in 44. He says it in 45. Come and receive my body and my blood represented here as bread and wine. Come and believe in me. And to the one who comes, he says again and again, that person will never be turned away. That person will never be cast out. That person will inherit, free of charge, eternal life. This is the good news. This is why Jesus came. This is the gospel. Jesus offers himself in death on the cross to wipe away all of our badness, all of our wrongdoing, all of the brokenness of our life. And he does it not because we deserved it or earned it or merited it. In any way, he does it because he's a God of grace and love. He offers his body on the cross to be broken so that you don't have to be broken. He sheds his blood to pardon all of our sins so that we don't have to pay for them on our own. And if you don't see Jesus in that light, then you are missing the real Jesus. What work will you perform, Jesus? Show us something. I am the bread of life. How are you going to respond? That's the last question. 
And that's what John starts to write about really in verse 60, but even a little bit before then. How will we respond to Jesus? Real quick, what responses do we see in this chapter? Well, I note at least three. You might be able to find more, but look with me quickly. Some respond with anger. Verse 41, the Jews grumbled. They grumbled about him. Verse 52, the Jews then disputed among themselves saying, how can this man, this man's a cannibal. Are you kidding me? They're already plotting and devising a way to put this man to death because he threatens the status quo. You know, it's probably a good reminder for each one of us to know that the only rational responses to Jesus are either anger or adoration. There is no middle ground with Jesus. You cannot be kind of on board with Jesus. You cannot be kind of a Christian. You cannot kind of like Jesus. Because he says, you need to drink my blood. Crazy people say that. Or God says that. And there's nothing in between. So if your response to Jesus is just ho-hum, then you need to reconsider. Even a better response, this isn't a good response, but a better response than ho-hum is anger. Because at least you're getting it. One response is anger. Another response is abandonment. Look in 60. When many of the disciples heard this, this is all his body and blood talk, they said, this is a hard saying. Who can listen to this? And most of his disciples abandon him. Jesus goes from a mega church pastor to a house church pastor. Stat. Pronto. In one sermon. <laughs> that does, I didn't get taught this in seminary. How to grow a church. Let's turn to John 6. That did not happen. And Jesus says, listen, you've got to eat my flesh and drink my blood. And everybody says, I'm out. Too much for me. Gone. What is it that's hard? Why do these people abandon Jesus? Well, I think the reason is because Jesus' teaching is difficult for those of us who want to do something for ourselves. Jesus' teaching is difficult for those of us who, who can't see the depth of our own need. It's difficult for those of us who are self-righteous. It's difficult for the proud. It's difficult for the half-hearted. And so they bail on him. Then and now... People don't like Jesus' promise that all you need to do is trust. People don't like that Jesus is the only way. They don't like that God gets all the credit in salvation. But listen, that's the truth. And it's hard for humans to accept that they have nothing to do with their own rescue. And so many will leave. Many will abandon him. Many who were once thought to be his people will turn coat and run. Where are you? That's the question. Do you find it difficult? Be honest with yourself internally. Do you find it difficult? Yeah. <laughs> if you're really a Christian, then the answer to that question is yes. I hate to be, speak too strongly, but that's probably not strong enough. Yes, I find it difficult, Jesus. It's hard to follow you sometimes. And so Jesus asks his disciples, what a poignant question this is. Verse 66, do you all want to go away as well? Are all of you going to leave me? And look at Peter's response. Good old Peter. You never know what he's going to say. Just like many of us. And he says, Lord, to whom shall we go? You have the words of eternal life. And we've believed. I read there, come hell or high water. We've believed. 
and have come to know that you are the Holy One of God. Man, that's, that's faith, if anything is. It's being able to say, yes, Lord, it is difficult. But where else am I going to go? To whom am I going to turn? Yes, Lord, there's a lot in my life that I don't understand. I have a lot of problems. I have much that's a struggle. But where else will I go? You are the lover of our souls. You have the words of life. You can give us the bread that will fill us forever. I think we'll stick with you. That, my friends, is all Jesus needs from you. So that's the message of John 6. Jesus calls you. He asks you right now, right now, he asks you to see him and to trust him fully. That is faith. Remember the one floating in the water. He can hold you. Let me close with uh, C.S. Lewis. Mere Christianity, the chapter on faith. He actually has two chapters on faith in the book. This is the first of the two. And this is an extended quote I'm going to read to close. It's not behind you, so you're just going to have to listen. Um, So listen to what Lewis writes. I think he captures the point of John 6 beautifully. If there was any idea that God has set us a sort of exam and that we might get good marks by deserving them, that has to be wiped out. If there was any idea of a sort of bargain, any idea that we could perform our side of the contract and thus put God in our debt so that it was up to him, that has to be wiped out. The first result of real Christianity is to blow that idea into bits. Then comes another discovery. Every faculty you have, your power of thinking or of moving your limbs from moment to moment is given to you by God. If you devoted every moment of your whole life exclusively to his service, you could not give him anything that was not in a sense his own already. So that when we talk of a man doing anything for God or giving anything to God, I will tell you what that is really like. It is like a small child going to his father and saying, Daddy, give me sixpence to buy you a birthday present. Of course, the father does, and he is pleased with the child's present. It is all very nice and proper. But only an idiot would think that the father is sixpence richer on the transaction. When a man has made this discovery, God can really get to work. It is after this that real life begins. The man is awake now. Are you awake? Let's pray.